What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals podcast. And today our guest is Preston Walls. Preston is a real estate syndicator based in Seattle, Washington, and doing most of his investments in the Seattle, Washington area. Today we're talking about value add strategies that he is using in his business to earn a return in that high-end expensive market of Seattle, and then strategies that they're using in his business to manage those invest investments, manage those properties, and really earn that return on the back end as well and throughout the operation of the properties. So these are important for both active and passive investors to know and understand because even if you're gonna go passively invest in a syndication, you need to really vet that syndicator and make sure they have strategies and structures and experience in place so that they can execute on their value add plans. And by learning from experienced syndicators, experienced investors, you can learn what to look for in syndication opportunities and syndicators when you're evaluating them. So there are some great lessons in this one. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Happy to be bringing this conversation to you. We are now live streaming on YouTube. So if you're not following us on YouTube yet, go to YouTube, type in Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals and give us a subscription. It's much appreciated. And you'll be able to catch us live and ask questions of our interviewees moving forward. So thanks for tuning in once again. Here we go with Preston Walls. Preston Walls, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Taylor. Excited to be here. Great to talk with you. Could you tell us a bit about your business and what you do before we get into talking a bit about value add strategies and, and everything that you've learned so far as a, as a syndicator? Tell us about your business. Yeah, so uh, my investment business, real estate uh, investment uh, based in Seattle, um, I buy properties, I renovate them. I've got a, a construction team, construction management team that, that handles the renovation. Uh, property management team that handles management and uh, some third-party management for other clients. Um, and we, we do uh, asset management and leasing maintenance all in-house as well. Awesome. So uh, a full service suite, you're doing the whole thing there uh, in Seattle. That's great. And we're talking right now during the coronavirus pandemic. So we're all dealing with that. And today I wanted to dis discuss with you your value add strategies, because even as passive real estate investors, syndication investors, we need to understand the plans that our sponsors have, how they're going to execute those. And, you know, we're getting an inside scoop from an experienced value add real estate syndicator. So tell us about the walls model in your uh, value add strategies. Yeah. So my, my model is looking for unutilized or underutilized space that can be uh, reclaimed, repurposed um, into a more efficient use, a, a higher and better use of, of space. So rather than looking at it on a, a property basis, I look at it on a per unit basis or um, a unused space, uh, storage rooms, carport, parking spaces where where zoning allows for those to be converted to dwelling units um laundry rooms if you're 
converting the building to in-unit washer and dryers that could be uh, added to to units. So basically, my my model is is looking to find a a, a more productive use for space throughout property. Okay, and and digging a bit deeper into that, I can see. I, I would expect that your your market really determines whether or not this or or how well this strategy works because for example you're in seattle but if you were in a market where carports for example were were very highly valued then would you agree that turning that carport into another unit would be maybe not an ideal situation or have you found like across the board that if you can turn the carport into another unit that that is pretty much across the board a good solution good good for your value add strategy well it- yeah, it's very much uh, local, locally dependent, and part of uh, part of what's uh, created or driven it is, uh, you know, being in a in a dense urban market. There's there's this, yeah, this premium for for space for well located space, and uh, a, a space to live is significantly is worth significantly more than a place to park your car or your belongings and so it I, part of it even with the the cost of converting it to a habitable space that that delta is what i'm looking to capture mm, okay now in executing the strategy i mean there's there is some inherent risk in it was always inherent risk but there's inherent risk in here uh of, in what assumptions you make about space that you can convert. You mentioned zoning, things like that. Um, But there's a a trade-off, right? When you're looking at a property, thinking about acquiring it and to just keep harping on the the car, car park or whatever, whether or not you can really turn that into units, can you really be 100% certain that you're able to do that before you buy the property or is that something that you have to use experience and knowledge and and really take a calculated risk? Like, how do you balance those two factors and and really mitigate the risk of the zoning guy coming in and saying, "No, you can't do that because of this obscure line in the code that I say no" or whatever? Uh, yeah, that's that's a really good question. And this is where the the art part of the equation wow. factors in uh, with it. So, you know, step one in that in that question is have a good architect. And you know, initially in my in my early days of getting started, I was my own architect, and you know, I I read through the the land use code and found all of the reasons uh, that I could do it, and I you know, went down to the, the, uh, the <laughs> planning <laughs> and I sat with them and, you know, we hashed it out on what, what could work and what, what couldn't. And, uh, I, you know, eventually that, that evolves into outsourcing that, that piece to, to a professional who's, who's, uh, lives in that, that code all the time. So I, I rely on architects, uh, tremendously for, for initial due diligence feasibility. Here's what I want to do. Here's here's my here's my vision for this property. Can it work? And the the answer is usually some some qualified yes. <laughs> so um, yes, but if you want to do that 
scope of renovation, you'll have to add a sprinkler system to the building. And, you know, I might decide, all right, that's, that's cost prohibitive to do, um, or uh, the building's going to be open anyway. Um, so not that much more relative to the, the, the increase in value. So yeah, it, it very much depends on the, the, where the asset is, the zoning and, and the, the characteristics that go into it. It, it's the, uh, the scale of the, butt. like, how big is that? That <laughs> yes, but what does that really, it sounds like if I'm getting, right. uh, yes, absolutely. I, there's in, in Seattle, there's, there's a lot around parking. So, uh, you know, in, in some areas you can eliminate parking entirely. There's some incentives around, uh, transit oriented, transit oriented development to, to reduce, uh, reduce parking spaces and create more density around those nodes. And in other kind of transitional areas, you can reduce half of your parking and then other areas there's, there's no parking mitigation. So where it falls in that, and, and there's some, some blurry lines with that or ambiguous lines that, uh, that I rely on architect to, help help delineate interesting okay so i mean if if folks wanted to to get into that business for example i mean sounds like you're going to be dealing with this architect a lot and i'm I'm curious how the how the cost structure usually works i mean how deeply do they really need to dig into it like how much of a sunk cost do you have on just evaluating the deals compared to then going and executing them when, you know, I imagine there's some interplay too, where you're actually sending this architect work, then they'll probably look at stuff for free for you to a certain extent. So, you know, where's the, how much you really invested in a deal before you say, ah, no, I'm not going to do it or let's move forward. Yeah. Uh, I, an architect and certainly an architect that you've, you've worked with before and have a, have a history with, they'll, they'll generally give you a, a cursory indication on it for free. So, you know, you get in touch with them. Hey, here's what I want to do. Here's the address. Uh, here are the building plans. If you've gotten them from the city, uh, what's, what's feasible here. And they can, they can give you, uh, you know, probably an 80% guidance. And then that, that takes me far enough to, uh, say make an offer, get get a property under contract, and then once it's under contract, uh, can spend some money. Maybe it's five hundred dollars for for more detailed feasibility analysis, uh, and that that gets me through feasibility, and you know to to add uh, to convert to convert a uh, a space to to a habitable unit just the the architectural fee is is probably seven or eight grand uh for that to to do the do the permits and or to do the plans and expedite the permit mm, okay so that's not too bad and i wanted to get a little bit deeper into the specific projects that you're doing and, and kind of the scale of them too because a lot of times right now when when folks think about value add 
say multifamily syndications, they're buying an asset with uh, 150 units somewhere in the Midwest and doing a few thousand dollars per unit worth of work and then raising the rents a little bit and calling it good. But it sounds like the amount of work that you're doing to these units is more considerable. You mentioned about um, the sprinklers example, you're opening some of these up and when you're adding units and everything, it's adding up in the cost. So can you tell us more about like specific projects that you do and what like typical value add, you know, dollar per door things look like? I imagine it's all over the place, but what does that mean in your business? Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, I imagine there's gonna be some sticker shock here if you're, uh, <laughs> comparing it with, uh, it is Seattle. uh, with, uh, yeah, I, I mean, and to be, to be clear, uh, I, my models evolved on each, each deal that you do, you get a little more confidence. Uh, you would, you'd learn a few things, uh, that you do differently. There's, there's new amenities, um, that seem like uh, they're they're too far fetched, like heated floors, for example. Uh, right, it's a nice amenity, and and uh, but once you know when the when the floor's up and the walls open, it's not that much more to uh, run the conduit from the thermostat down to the floor and put the heat mat under the tile. Uh, so it's a lot of those that that add up. But my my typical budget, if I'm just thinking about purchasing an existing building and renovating renovating it i'm i'm budgeting uh anywhere from 100 to 125,000 per door for existing units and it probably 150 to 175 uh to construct to construct a new unit in in an enclosed or semi-enclosed space so you know there's there's some variance on the size and the site conditions and and all that but but those are the the rough rough parameters that i work with okay so is that in addition to acquisition cost if you buy an existing structure and you're adding units it's another i think you said 125 a door in, in addition to the whatever per door you paid, I just want to make sure I'm understanding those numbers. Correct. So if your your acquisition cost is 400 a door and you're adding 100,000, your your cost basis is then half a million dollars per door. Wow. Yeah. It's, sticker shock is right, but it's a completely different market. I mean, the real estate I buy is in much lower income markets. So the, the price per door is correspondingly a lot lower. People are paying a lot less in rent. So it makes sense that the the numbers scale up. It's just interesting uh, to hear how high up that they can go. And in doing these projects, I also wanted to talk with you about your management team and what you do with your, you know, asset management and, and construction management of those projects and how you handle it, how the all the the handoff works when you get to the point where it's ready and you're gonna then you know, management, manage it in-house and, and hand it off to the, the property management team. Let's get into that a little bit, how your management structures work. Our uh, construction management team, asset management team, property management team, all, we're all together. We all uh, share, share uh, same, same space and meetings. Uh, so there's a lot of just 
a fluid dialogue that that happens among those those teams so that that handoff and communication uh can happen as as fluidly as as possible and and all of those teams are involved from the beginning so right the the property management team uh is is very involved at the beginning uh right what what are the pro forma rents what are other buildings in the neighborhood that we've renovated what what rents are we able to achieve in those buildings and that that helps uh, drive some of the construction budget so how how nice are we going to turn this property into does it support it uh, and uh, on the the asset management side you know financing is is kind of always playing out through through this cycle there's uh, the uh, the construction financing that and draws which require communication with with the construction team and and then as it's getting stabilized uh, the asset managers looking for permanent financing uh, for the takeout okay and and you mentioned financing is very important you know mentioned before we're in the coronavirus crisis right now and one of the things that I've noticed as a purchasing existing assets in other markets is you know, financing is a lot harder to get right now <laughs> than it used to be. Is it ever? Yeah. How have you, like, what have you seen so far, especially in construction financing? I mean, are bankers even <laughs> willing to have conversations right now? Like, how have things changed? Uh, I, construction financing's interesting. I, I have, uh, I'm, I'm in, in for permit on a, what is it, a 58 unit uh, building. So it's a, a new construction ground up, uh, and f- from a, a local local lender community bank, uh, there there's been some uh, some good interest in financing that, and they've uh, they've hung in there through all this. It's it's not done yet, uh, but yeah, that that market that just in this one instance uh has been easier it's gotten it's gotten more attention than uh refinances of of stabilized buildings the the stabilized uh refi process has been really really challenging uh, just did one through freddie mac um uh, it it started well before uh corona was an issue and kind of fell apart <laughs> in the middle and uh they came back with uh with new terms which which was a higher debt service coverage ratio one year of uh principal and interest payments held in reserve uh, and just kind of some some other uh things at the margin but those it it made it made it more challenging i've seen a lot of lenders just pull out of uh, the market entirely and or if not pull out essentially pull out by uh, increasing underwritten vacancy reserves uh, on mixed use buildings or they've seen underwriting of commercial space at 100% vacant so essentially giving you no credit for for commercial rent in properties. So it, 
yeah, the uh, the financing markets been been tough, and I I wouldn't expect it to get any easier uh, going forward, especially if if rents uh, decline very much. That is tough. I mean, uh, if they're assuming 100% vacancy, that's going to really kill the purchase price. Of, or the, the, any any contract that is assuming if there is a tenant in there, you're you're paying for that that existing tenant. Um, and and another thing we've seen kind of across the board in this crisis is both residential tenants and commercial tenants you know, paying less rent basically, or, or infrequently paying rent, you know, economic vacancies going up. Um, what have you seen so far across your, your portfolio and how are you going to you know, mitigate any of these negative effects moving forward, at least until we get on the other side of this thing? Yeah, it, that, that part has, part has been really, really fascinating. It, it's played out much differently than I expected. So our our April uh, delinquency uh, was was considerably less than I expected. We uh, we ended uh, ended the month of April uh, just just above three and a half percent delinquent, which you know it's still uh, higher than March, but. Uh, not as bad so as bad. I was expecting. Yeah. May May so far is is tracking uh, two and a half to three points above April's collections um, on a a day by day basis uh, compared to to those those data points uh, in the previous month. So um, yeah, incrementally more challenging in in May and. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to know uh, where where the month will will shake out. Uh, I I had some optimism initially. Our our share of, of prepaid rents going into May was was actually higher than than April, but uh, the uh, the delinquency rates uh, also turned out to be a little little higher as well. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's. Um... We don't have a light at the end of the tunnel yet. And, and until that happens, you know, it's, it seems like it's just going to get tougher and tougher, hopefully incrementally tougher. I, yeah. It, it's, it's so hard to know uh, where, where this ends and, and what getting back to back to work or getting businesses back open looks like just because they're open, uh, doesn't mean people will come and you know if if a business is operating at 50 percent capacity are they are they able to pay the the same rent that they were previously um it's not it's not boding well uh for for the near term or through the end of the year ouch on that very happy note (laughs) We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Preston, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show, are you ready? I am ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? The best investment I ever made was the the first syndication deal that I did. It was... Uh, um, 
it was it was a building uh, block from my office, and uh, I was early on in my my career. I uh, I didn't have the money to uh, to buy it on my own, and mm-hmm. I got a uh, dozen of my friends together, and uh, we we uh, pitched in and still own it today. Nice, nice. Was that uh, toward the beginning of the cycle? Like what about when was that? So purchased it in uh 2006 right right at the right before the peak and you still you still have it which is a great sign uh yes and so at at the time it was it just it was a funky it was a funky deal that uh no one really wanted it had uh it had an easement with the neighbor on it um, so at, at the time I, I purchased or not purchased, I made an agreement with, with the neighbor, a first right of refusal to purchase their space. Uh, and I, we, so we acquired, acquiring the neighboring parcel, um, in four years ago, 2016. So now we control this, this central piece of a block in a, a dense, dense neighborhood. It's, it's a one story building zone for eight stories. Wow. Um, so that the, the land value is, has, uh, increased tremendously there. That's awesome. That's great. On the other side of that, we had the best investment. What is the <laughs> worst investment you ever made? Oh, the, the worst investment I made was, uh, I, breaking uh breaking your investment criteria uh to to venture outside of uh just the the tried and true model i it it had a lot of characteristics uh that i i thought would would make it great it was um the worst building on a a uh a fabulous street kind of a uh, a marquee um, retail street in Seattle. Uh, also close to my office, walked there. Um, but the the challenge with it was it it had uh, it had two different historic overlays on the building, and I I, I figured my the work that I wanted to do was it was interior and I it it. Uh, would not be hindered by these historic historic overlays but ultimately it was it was too challenging to get to get the permit uh to do the work on it so i i held it for a year and and uh put a lot of time and energy into it but ultimately uh sold that building ouch wow it's a it's a it's a pretty proven strategy uh, to buy the worst building in, in, a, in a nice part of town. It, it usually works out, but it doesn't always work out. My favorite question here at the end of the show is, what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? Yeah, the most important thing, uh, it's, it's about control. The more the more of the asset you control, the more decision-making you control, the better your chance of a positive outcome is going to be. And 
it's it's why I've structured uh, structured my my business to include construction and maintenance and property management. Uh, so much of it is uh, being able to to get the contractor there and and knowing uh, what they're what they're telling you is is accurate. Same thing on on leasing. All all the areas that go into making a successful project, the more the more control you have over each of those aspects, the better it's going to be. Nice. I like that. And yeah, you guys have all your management in-house. So you, you are exactly taking that control over the business. I really appreciate that. Preston, thanks for joining us today. If folks want to get in touch with you and learn more about your business and your syndications and things that you're doing, where can they get in touch with you? You bet. Thank you, Tyler, for Taylor Taylor for having me on the uh, on the show. I uh, I appreciate it. Companies WallsPropertyManagement.com and WallsPropertyGroupRE.com on the the syndication side. Love it. Do some investments in Seattle. I think it's a uh, still going to continue to be a growth market in the future, at least once we get uh, past the coronavirus. So. Definitely some good potential opportunities there. Thanks for joining us once again. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. And for those of you listening to the audio, this was live streamed on YouTube. So be sure to go follow us on YouTube. Passive Wealth Strategies on YouTube. There you go. You'll get notification anytime we go live and you can tune in and ask questions. Thanks for tuning in. Once again, I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week and we will talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.